Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Philip Lancaster and Dr. Bob Larson. Good morning, guys. Hey, good morning. Good morning, Brad. Happy to have you guys with us, and we're all back and in our podcasting room, so we're happy to be here in person coming to you today, and always happy to have you join us. And if you have questions, things you'd like us to talk about, you can always send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. And on today's program, we're actually going to address a couple of listener questions, one about cow-calf software, one about milk fever, as well as discussing a little bit on some of the summertime things we think about, like hay management and creep feeding in calves. Before we get into that, the standard summer joke is, it's so hot that, what's your favorite go-to? Oh yeah, it's it's so hot that uh, you should have given you should <laughs> come on you should have given me a little bit of a a warning or something. I just gave you a warning. Yeah, that's, that's, that's not much of a. Uh, so it's really hot. <laughs> it's it's so hot that even my kids are complaining. Even, which, yeah, that took it like any sense. I, yeah, it's like. Ninety degrees and a little humidity, and they start complaining. So that's, that's my fault. I'll give you more prep. Next yeah, time. next time a little more prep. Yeah, <laughs> the, kids, the kids complaining. <laughs> like they, they don't complain any other it's time. It's so hot. The kids want to go to the pool. <laughs> so okay, that doesn't matter anything. Mine want to go to the pool in January. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll have to work on that. It, okay, so I, it, it's hot, but it's hot. yeah, yeah it's, whatever. Yeah. It's hot and it's dry and it's not fun when you can't like those stick in posts. You can't get them into the ground unless you have to insert them into a crack. Yeah. So that's the, that's this time of year. So hopefully you're managing the heat well and keeping the animals cool. And it is something to watch for as you watch for heat stress in animals. And we'll talk about that on an upcoming episode, but keep an eye out for that and make sure they have lots of access to water. Before we discuss that anymore, I did want to talk about, we had a great listener question, and the question was related to software, cattle management software and apps, and specifically looking on the cow-calf side, what are some of the things that you guys use or recommend when you think about record-keeping for cow-calf operations? Well, you know, this is a question that, that I've actually kind of changed my mind over time. When I was I was younger and, and computers were new uh, and really had the oppor- the first opportunity to really have some computer-based record-keeping systems. And I was so excited about that. And I got some training and um, tried to work with my clients to get them involved in some computer record-keeping system because I, I just knew that it would provide so much valuable information. And I, I've kind of changed my mind over the years in that the the record keeping the and I've been the other good thing is you know I've had some exposure to the dairy industry some exposure to the swine industry and in those um, industries they have some really good computer based record keeping systems but one of the big differences is both those uh, the dairy guys are are marketing product every day and cows lactation curve is moving every day and so there there is a there is a dynamic need for information frequently kind of the same thing with the swine guys. With beef cattle production, I mean, we breed cows over a couple of month period of time, and then we wean calves all on one day, and then we might retain those calves and then sell them to the feedlot or to a stalker operation a few weeks later. But there's only, there's not this daily need for updated kind of on-the-fly information. So I've come, I've come back around to, I like computers. I like technology. I think there's some opportunities to capture some information that's really valuable, but the information needs on a kind of time-dependent basis where computers really thrive 
is not so much in beef cattle production. I think you can do really well with relatively simple programs or even paper-based records. You know, that's a it's a heresy to say in this day of computers, but I think a lot of times it works all right. Yeah, I, because like you said, we're not there's not even data collection points very frequently that we would even collect data on a beef cattle operation, cow, especially cow calf. So, um, you know, you can you can get by with something pretty simple. Um, and the simpler it is, the more likely you are to use it. If it's too complicated and requires a lot of work on your part, you're a lot less likely to actually use it. And, and we worry about, you know, collecting the data, but even if you collect a lot of data and it just sits there, it's not doing you any good. So it's got to be a system that you're going to collect the right data and that you're actually going to gain information from that data rather than just collecting data. Yeah. And I, and I think I'll, I'll disagree a little bit yeah. on that because you guys are thinking cow records. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking the first thing that comes to me is thinking about grazing or management records. So oh, okay. movement. And there are a couple apps out there that actually will allow you to put in your pastures and when did you move cows between this pasture and this pasture? And what I find useful is as you move them in and out, you go, okay, well, I'm kind of planning on this is going to last me a month. What did it last me last year? How long did I stay in there? What time of year did I move? And they're pretty simple to do. The part where I'll agree with you is if they're too complex, you just don't do it, right? It just falls off. So get something that's simple, easy to use. The one I've used um, takes just a, a minute, right? You pull it out and you can even take a picture on your phone and say, this is what the pasture looked like when they went in or when they came out. Uh, and even with that, I, I don't always use it, but it is nice to be able to go back and look and say, okay, here's what I did last year, mm -hmm. or here's how long they stayed in these pastures. Now there you've got some daily time sensitive data. That, that's true because forage, does change, you know, at least weekly. Now, and, and you know, I want to also uh, be, be careful that I'm not misinterpreted in that, you know, I've got some experience uh, with several programs, the Cal-Calf 5 out of, out of the University of Nebraska, CHAPS, uh, Cal360. You know, there, there's a number of programs that are out there that if you put the data in, they provide some really interesting and valuable data. A lot of that data really isn't at the at the individual level, it's more, uh, but it, but by putting data in at the individual level, I can get some cohort level, meaning I can see how my first calf heifers bred up and what their weaning, their calves weaning weights versus the cows versus cows from this pasture and stuff. So there is some really good information that can come out of a lot of different programs. My, I guess my advice to producer would be what I would almost say the, the simplest program that gives you the information that you want. And that, you know, and so I, again, I was thinking cow and even then calf weaning and post weaning type of, of data. You added some other additional things such as grazing management, you know, hay inventory, you know, just, just some inventory. So I'm certainly in favor of record keeping. Uh, Dustin Pendle isn't here today to, to, to roll his eyes because you know he's he's going to emphasize record keeping and and i agree some inventories feed inventories forage inventories hay inventories cattle inventories those types of records are absolutely essential and keeping track of prices and, and income um but that's a little bit different again i'm gonna I, my brain immediately went to the 
individual animal records that we keep in some other industries, we don't really keep so much in, in cow-calf. So we have our own special record-keeping needs. Not that we don't need records. It's that they're kind of unique record-keeping needs. But it's got to be able. It's got to be able to go with you. It's got to be able to, and I think it's not just a computer, but it could be as simple as I a spreadsheet own. that you can access on your phone. It could be as simple as, and there are some good apps that there are some things that you can track. Whether it's the amount of hay I delivered, the amount of hay I have, looking up information on cows. But I think simple, and you made that point. Simple, easy to access is what we're looking for. And I think I'd add one thing too. I think if you're comparing different apps or different programs that look at how it's going to present the information to you. It's one thing to just collect and store the data, but if that app um, automatically will build or you can tell it to build certain graphs and charts so you can track things over time or, or compare this year to last year really easily and things like that, um, it makes it a whole lot easier to get the knowledge and information out of there to make management decisions instead of you have to sit down and look at, at raw data. Absolutely. And there's a, a simple one as we've looked at and we've talked about before, weather data can be important. And a lot of us like to look out and go, man, it's dry or it's wet. But there are some of those that you can go in and you can just pull up for my specific area. Where are we on annual rainfall? Where are we in this month? Where are we now? So that can help. And especially we talk about weather. One of the things that we do at this time of year that's really weather dependent is making hay. And a lot of folks have been making hay. And when you discuss making hay, you can get a variety of opinions, right? Did you cut it too early? Did you cut it too late? It was weather dependent. I had to cut it here because of this or that. And I know there's a trade-off and people talk about the volume versus quality of the hay. And there's lots of different types of hay, but just in general terms, Philip, what does, when hay gets too mature, how rapidly does that quality drop off? So when we get, when, so let's think about a grass compared to alfalfa, or, or, um, it's kind of the same thing, but I'm going to use terms related to grass. So when we get to what we call the boot stage of a grass, where it's putting up that first seed head, um, but the seed head hasn't emerged yet, then at, at from that point on, the digestibility of that forage or that grass starts to decline. And as it moves further into the, um, the what we call mature stage with um, that seed head coming up, it's flowering, it's pollinating, and then producing seed, that um, plant is declining in nutritional value pretty rapidly. And so typically what we say is that the optimum time to, to balance, well, let me back up a minute. So as it, but you know, as it's declining in digestibility, it's increasing in biomass that's out there in the field. So, so you go out there and harvest it and you look that you are um, collecting a, or you're bailing a whole lot of biomass. Okay? But the, what we say is that there's a trade-off there because that biomass is now lower quality than it was earlier. And so there's an optimum time point. And usually when we say that boot stage is kind of that optimum time to cut grass where you're balancing the digestibility of that grass as a um, per pound, so to speak, and the number of pounds that you're going to harvest. And if, so if you kind of put those two things together, where you look at the pounds of digestible biomass out there in the field, 
okay, it actually flattens off at that point or close to that point as you go further on because the digestibility is declining so fast as the biomass is increasing that the total digestible biomass is flat. Yeah. The, pro- the problem is, of course, that I've got a lot of hay to put up in a short period of time and the grass continues to mature. It won't sit still for me and, and, and stay where I want it to. Um, and, and then, of course, then we'll get an untimely rain that slows me down. And, and just and, and so maybe we'll talk, I don't know, this, this podcast or a later one, because sometimes then I've got diversity. In, in, if, I, if I've harvested quite a bit of hay, I've got some that I put up at about the right time. It has pretty good digestibility. And I've probably also got some bales that have a whole lot less digestibility. Um, and come winter, I'm going to have to, I get to use the good, the better quality hay that was put up kind of more optimally. And then I'm also probably going to have some hay that I'm going to have to deal with that was later than I would have liked. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things we talk about, and Philip, you talk about that trade-off between the biomass and the digestibility depends a, a lot on the grass and where it started. Because cows, beef cows, sometimes we need that biomass and a balance of that and digestibility because they don't need, you started out with saying, I'm going to talk about grass instead of alfalfa because it's rare that we feed alfalfa to beef cows because they don't need that level of nutrition. Is that is that fair? Yeah, that, I mean, the cost of alfalfa and stuff probably isn't um, that also cost effective in a mm-hmm. beef cow operation. Um, that you don't generally need something that high quality ex- unless maybe during uh, early lactation you're wanting replacement to get- heifers early lactation there's a few places it, it'd be nice if i can afford it yeah but you know supplements or other things may be more cost effective than buying alfalfa so i think one of the things that, that we're discussing here is you you try to make it at the right time but bob i think your point really good is we can't get it all made at the right time. And so what I may need to do is segregate and feed that at times when it makes sense for the cows. So in highest nutritional needs, I'm going to save some of my best hay for that point. And in lower nutritional needs, mid gestation, not lactating, they can have the stuff that didn't quite get made at the right time. Yeah, I think, and that's, I think a, that's perfectly reasonable. I think that's exactly kind of the, the best way to, you know, it's the hand we're dealt is not all the hay is equal quality, but kind of keep track of timing of harvest and then use the the hay for the right groups of animals most optimally. But I think optimally. this is the time of year to think about it because you want to put it in the right spot so you can so access get to it, it when you need it. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk about hay storage on an upcoming episode, but I also wanted to talk about in, in addition to hay, we have talked about a lot of different things on this podcast. And one of the things that we did a few weeks ago, which we want to do again, is have another research roundup. So we're going to invite in uh, graduate student Hector Rojas and have him discuss some of his research. Our research roundup this week, we've got the privilege of having Hector Rojas with us. Good morning, Hector. Hey, good morning. We're happy to have Hector discuss some of the research that he's been doing. Hector is a master's student and he has really, we talk about diving into big data. Hector jumped in the deep end and started playing with some data, but he's using it to answer some really practical questions. What are some of the questions that you're working on, Hector? So the main focus of my project is to look at pen management 
characteristics and how they could affect the risk of bovine respiratory disease in feedlot cattle, specifically commercial feedlot cattle. Some of the things we've looked at are how much pen area do you have per head in each cohort of cattle, uh, bunk space per head as well, uh, and then uh, shared water sources, does that affect BRD, and then you know how many fence lines do you share between each pen, does that impact BRD, just things like that. And Hector, what did you find? Yeah, so to data we used data from 10 commercial feed yards uh, representing about 190,000 head of cattle and um, just to answer your question about you know the waters um, we looked at pens that you know, shared like one water source or more than one water source and what we found was actually there wasn't a lot of difference in the risk of BRD depending on the number of water sources available or how many water sources are shared between pens so you know that's interesting that no matter how much no matter how much you change those variables, it's not going to really change the risk of BRD at all. The other thing that you talked about, and, and one that I find interesting, things like pen space per head, when we look at, and, and essentially animal density in a different environment, that's one of the things that we've theorized may make a difference. It, and we don't have a lot of good numbers other than we know what people do. We don't have a lot of good numbers on the relationship with disease. What did you find related to that? So yeah, we looked at the pen space per head and the bunk space per head. And what we found is that it really doesn't matter how much pen area or bunk space per head you give until you get to the heavyweights. Specifically in our data, it was the nine weights that showed differences. So with those heavyweight cattle, uh, there's differences in BRD risk depending on how much pen area you give them per head, depending on the cohort size. Um, with bunk space per head, there wasn't any differences between those heavyweights just in the pen area per head. So if they had less pen space per head in those heavier weight cattle, they had a higher risk of BRD or lower? Uh, a higher risk. Higher risk of BRD. Yes. Okay. You're using data from specific feed yard operations. How does that differ from some of the data you might collect from, say, a research trial? Uh, so what this commercial data is, it's it's real world. Like It's, it's actual data that is collected from these commercial feed yards that you're likely gonna see when you're putting it out there into practice. And so if you're collecting it from a research facility, it doesn't necessarily have that real world aspect to the data, whereas the data I'm using does. Excellent, and some really good applied research. Thanks Hector for joining us and we appreciate your input and we appreciate the work that you're doing on the data side. Uh, thank you, thanks for having me. As the grass gets a little bit dried out, it gets hot, it gets to midsummer. Sometimes our pastures get a little bit burnt up and we start thinking about what are the ways that I can supplement and make sure my calves are continuing to grow as well as they should. And a question often comes up, what about creep feeding? So I wanted to get you guys opinions on, and, and let me give you a scenario. It is late July, I'm running really short on grass and I wanna make sure that my calves, my spring-born calves continue to grow well. I'm thinking about taking out a creep feeder. Thoughts? I think this is a question that works great with a spreadsheet or a big chief tablet and a pencil and, and just ask yourself about the costs versus the benefits. And, and my, I have a bias in the, in my opinion, most of the times that I have done that, where I've really pulled a pencil out and looked at it, what I would probably be better off doing is weaning the calves. Uh, we can wean calves, beef calves, at a relatively young age and have them really do well on a fairly simple diet of, 
you know, good quality forage and a supplement. What's a relatively young age? Um, you can actually wean calves, you know, at just a few weeks of age, two, three, four weeks of age. I've had real success anytime past six weeks uh, in that their their rumen is kind of developed well enough that it doesn't take a lot of my skill to, to handle those. And actually, I should just be quiet and let Philip talk. He's the nutritionist. So I, I'm going to say earlier than, I mean, we talk about early wean. So July, they're not early, early, in my opinion. They're easy to wean at that stage. Um, and I would rather do that and provide the feed to them directly than to leave them out on the cow, continuing lactation, continuing, and because those calves by that time, they're not just drinking milk. They're eating a fairly high amount of that grass, and by pulling all the calves off, or at least the calves from the heifers or something like that, off that pasture, I've all of a sudden just increased the amount of grass available for the cows. Yeah, and well, and the if you're, if you're trying to save grass, there's a couple different ways to look at it. If you're trying to save grass, I'd agree with you. Weaning them is a whole lot more effective than creep feeding. Um, because number one, you're going to pull the calf off the pasture, which at that age, that calf is probably eating, you know, two, three, four pounds of, of grass a day. But then that cow is going to decrease her grass intake. She's not lactating anymore. So her intake is also going to decrease. Oh, 20, 30% or, or so a, a day. And so um, that is going to save you quite a bit of forage if that's your goal. So creep, creep feeding, though, the expense is the feed itself. And so sometimes one of the discussions I think is important is what's the, what's the feed efficiency of creep feeding versus just weaning the calves and feeding them like you guys are proposing. Because what I'm hearing is, I may actually end up taking out more feed to the calves because now I'm providing their whole diet and it might be more expensive. Is there a difference in efficiency? Well, that's a, well, that's a tough question, Brad, because I don't know that we have any direct comparisons from that perspective that I know of. What well, If we look at, and I, I can give you some numbers, but I don't know that they're really valid for that type of because generally what we've done from a research perspective is we've compared creep feeding to no creep feeding or we've compared um, early weaning calves to not early weaning calves I don't know that we've done a whole lot of research looking at early weaning calves compared to creep feeding calves one of the things that I personally found and again maybe it's just the experiences that I had was the amount of wastage so um, it, we, we might be able to do a research study where we really controlled any wastage. And by wastage, I'm, a lot of times it was uh, wildlife, so really fat raccoons and deer, and um, as well or as cows wind. Or, or cows, cow. depending on yeah. how you're feeding it. Yeah, they, yeah. they sometimes drive real hard to get into that creep feeder. And, and then in, in addition, you know, weather losses and things like that. So depending on how the feed is delivered. So it starts to m- minimize losses takes a lot of labor a lot of work to really make sure that uh that that we're not having excessive losses because it's not just feed consumed per pound gain it's feed delivered per pound of weaning weight gained and i think that's where hand feeding in a dry lot or grass trap or something directly to the cattle usually because i'm delivering that daily um, i can really minimize the losses and so the amount delivered is pretty close to the amount consumed and I guess that's my biggest concern with creep feed is a lot of times the amount delivered is much more than the amount consumed. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that I've seen efficiency wise is it, it's less efficient at the feed conversion. And partially the other concept there is if I've got a calf that's on the cow and grazing pasture and eating creep feed, his rumen has to split and divide, not physically divide, but the bacteria have to say, I got to be able to digest this and this and this. Whereas if I wean him and he's no on, milk. Yeah, yeah, and no milk, we change his diet and he can adjust. He's going to be a little bit more efficient. So I think that's one of the things to watch out for too. And certainly creep feeding will make those calves a little bit heavier at weaning, but I'd watch the economics. And I'm going to go back to the very first yeah. thing you said, Bob, put a pencil get, to get it. Get a pencil out. Yeah. See, I'm not saying it's all, that, that my bias is always right, but I, I think it's a great place for a pencil and just say, well, what's my cost? What, what am I going to gain? I will agree. I don't think your bias is always right. <laughs> so, I'll, I'll just say usually. in my two about, cents. How about I'll, usually? I'm with you on that one. There, we found something we can agree on. <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. Excellent. So one of the other questions that we had, and I think this is a good question because we don't see it very often, and they ask if we had ever talked about milk fever, and we have not because often as a veterinarian, we think about the typical milk fever is going to be in a dairy cow yes. and she is hype milk fever is really hypocalcemia so you have a low. low level of calcium in the blood and these cows will just be down they can't get up there the calcium provides the ability for your muscles to contract and do all the things you need to do to get up you give them a bottle of calcium and, and wow, they feel wow. better. They look, they look terrible. You give them a bottle. It's one of the great things as a veterinarian because you go out and they look terrible. You give them a bottle of calcium, they look great. And this, we don't see it very much in beef cows. So I want to ask you guys, why don't we see it as much in beef cows? Well, and, and clarify, this happens right around the time she calves. Oh, so, right, yeah, the day point. before she calves, the day after she calves, the day she calves. I mean, it's right around that time period. Yep. Um, she can have grass tetanies and some other problems a little bit later and stuff. But milk fever, the classic milk fever, takes place right around the time she calves. And it can, I mean, they can, they can die and they certainly don't do well. Um, and, you know, I grew up thinking that that just didn't happen in beef cows. But over my career, we've got the, the milk production by beef cows, I, I think I can safely say, has gone up in the United States. And then there are some breeds. Um, you know, some of the Gelvies and, and Shorthorn and even Angus that milk at a level where it is possible. I still don't think it's common, but it is possible to see the classic milk fever that we used to only think happened in dairy cows. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I can think of one instance where, you know, we were, we were in a situation where we were shifting cows from a uh, fall calving herd to a spring calving herd. So we kind of skipped the cycle there. Those cows had a really high um, body condition score when they started lactating. And we had one of them with milk fever because she started producing, she had all that extra fat. She started producing a whole lot of milk all at once. And yeah, she got down. And so we had so, to. So it's, it's rare to have what we would call strictly a milk fever. However, it is more common to have a combination. And Bob, you mentioned grass tetany, and we've talked about that before. And grass tetany is low magnesium, and magnesium also will impact their ability to get up. It's just a little bit different mechanism but it, of action. It looks real similar to it. It looks real similar, and many times uh, low magnesium and low calcium 
will run together, Yes. except you'll see it a little bit further after calving. So this may be four weeks out, six weeks out, and it's it's a little bit different than the typical what we would think of as milk fever. So one of the now, things... However, the treatment is really similar. Treatment because is similar. Yeah. a lot of times that, that when we talk about a bottle of replacement fluids, it has calcium in it, it has magnesium in it, uh, it's got a little phosphorus in it. It's got, it's got a a balanced um, set of minerals that, that animals need if they have milk fever or grass tetany. And, and so the treatment is really similar and the signs are similar. Um, and so really what it's talking about is, is the, the, the diet not supplying all the nu- nutrients that the cattle need and we have to fix it fast. That's- well, and that's where I was going is, is if you keep the, the diet in it at a good level and you don't have really high milk production, both of these will probably not be as big of a problem. And we talked about a few episodes ago, mineral management and mineral management can also be really important. Am I getting the mineral to them? Am I taking high magnesium mineral out at certain times a year? Am I making sure that I'm providing them their mineral needs? And if so, I'm going to minimize these issues. But if you see a cow that's down, contact your vet. And, it's an emergency. Yeah, it's an emergency. You want to you want to get them treated because they they're more likely to respond if you get them treated early. And be cautious because sometimes those cows are down and with low magnesium, they can sometimes be aggressive. Mm-hmm. So just be careful with those. So we appreciate those listener questions. Appreciate you sending stuff in to us. And we always enjoy talking about it. So if you have any other questions you'd like to send us, you can always send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.